Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. Today is another Author's Shelf episode. Um, it, today is going to be a weird one because I'm used to talking a lot, and today I can't. Uh, because, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm Craig, your host, and with me, joining me today actually is Drew from Inking Out Loud. Uh, once again, Drew, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think uh, I think we owe you a few gold jackets at this point for how often you've come on the show. Um, but we'll get to why you're here in just a moment because there is a purpose behind it. But we should introduce our author guest today. It's James Kennedy. Welcome back, James. Hi, thanks for having me again. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, you were uh, it was one of my favorite conversations uh, in recent memory, and I know that the, the uh, listeners gave a lot of good feedback on the episode that we did in the fall on determinism. Yes, it was. Uh, yeah, really fascinating stuff. So now you're back for an author shelf episode. Mm-hmm. And you've chosen The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. And my copy of it is sitting over on the table. Dang it. Oh, well, um, The Man Who Was Thursday. There you go. Now he's holding it up for us. By G.K. Chesterton, by way of David Lynch, uh, as far <laughs> as I can tell. Um, this is the 1908 novel. Uh, and it's it absolutely defies categorization. Um, and and I don't know about defies, but certainly resists uh, even um, a, a, a story breakdown. It's hard to, to tell people what the story is about other than there's a cop who goes undercover and infiltrates a group of anarchists. Uh, and <laughs> we, we, all you, hell breaks we can, we, Yeah, we can work up to that. We'll work up to it. Yeah, yeah. So here here's the deal, guys. I do want to tell people listening, we're going to not spoil the end of the story and and who the players involved are until a certain moment so as far as possible you know see if we can get through 20 minutes plus of of conversation without spoiling it so that people will uh maybe be intrigued if they've never read it and and go read it and then we'll spoiler alert before we get to the ending and all that stuff fair yes yeah all right um, and before we start talking about the book, everybody needs to go to thelegendarium.com and uh, check out uh, all of our past episodes. Check out the Discord link to join the conversation and the Patreon link for, you know, supporting the show. Anyway. And, if, right. you find, and if you find me so fascinating, uh, then you should uh, check out my YA fantasy novel, The Order of Oddfish, uh, my uh, sci-fi thriller, uh, Dare to Know, or the book that's going to be coming out this fall, Bride of the Tornado. Bride of the Tornado. That's a great yeah. title. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, excellent. I was almost Thanks, I was almost uh, talked out of that title. I'm being published by Quirk Books, and they're like, I don't know, James. It seems a little pulpy to me. And I was like, You guys put out Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. You can you can <laughs> you can do Bride of the Tornado. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can you can spot me a Bride of the Tornado. You did Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. I think I think I'm okay. <laughs> I haven't even heard of that one yet. Neither have I. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's awesome. Uh, so, yes, in fact, uh, we, we talked about Dare to Know uh, the last time around. Um, yeah. And maybe we'll we'll bring it up again at the end of this episode. But for now, let's talk Chesterton. James, yeah. um, I, I, I invited you on for Author Shelf. And the deal is I, I always say, okay, what do you want us to read? And yes. those are basically the only parameters. And we've gotten mm-hmm. some weird stuff uh, and some great stuff on the author's shelf uh, because of that. Because I'm just like, throw the gate open wide. What's important to you? What's been influential to you? You chose G.K. Chesterton, the man who was Thursday. Why? Okay. Um, 
it's an important book to me. This is kind of like a cult novel that like, like certain people know about it and everybody who knows about it is kind of gaga over it or hates it, <laughs> um, which is the kind of book that I like to write. Uh, uh, it's an important book to me. It's like fantastical. It's religious. It's argumentative. It's melodramatic. And it's way over the top. Uh, I think it's what people used to be called like a young man's book. You know, uh, Chesterton <laughs> yeah, like, sure. wrote it when he was 34. It was uh, published in 1908. And I was in my mid-20s when I first read it. And my relationship to it and Chesterton has changed over the years. Like uh, like C.S. Lewis, Chesterton is someone I've always appreciated, but in a wary way. Like when I first encountered both of those authors, I found them bracing. But over time, like some aspects of them became like kind of hectoring and mechanical. But when I think about this book and the way it affected me and the time in my life in which I encountered it, it's kind of my, my own personal fight club. Um, and, um, and it's kind of also awesome. I'm going to argue it's kind of like the book of Job. Um, and, uh, um, so can, can I just like kind of set up for you, like just biographically where I was or autobiographically when I first read it? This is why we're here, James. (laughs) The world (laughs) needs to know. And and so Drew, you're Catholic, right? I am. Okay. So, um, so let me tell you who I was when I first read it. I I was raised Catholic, uh, Mm -hmm. church every Sunday, give stuff up for Lent, like very Catholic. I went to a Catholic high school, and then I went to University of Notre Dame, uh, even though I was never really that pious. Um, and I'm telling you all this because Chesterton was super Catholic. It really informs yes. his writing, even though, although he wasn't yet a Catholic when he wrote The Man Who Is Thursday. So anyway, I graduated from Notre Dame Correct. in 1995. Um, I was a double major in physics and philosophy. And after that, I didn't want to be a scientist anymore. And frankly, I wasn't a Catholic anymore. Um, and I did want to do some good. So I became a vo- volunteer science teacher at a Catholic middle school in Washington, D.C. Um, and I lived in a convent, which is a bunch of nuns, which is the wrong place for a 21-year-old man to be living. And um, <laughs> I taught science to 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. And then I moved to Tokyo. I was an English teacher there for a while. Then I came back to the States. I lived with my parents for like a year and a half while I got another degree in computer science. And then I moved to Chicago in 2000. I became a computer programmer. So I, met, I read The Man Who Was Thursday uh, in that in-between time in 1998, 1999. And I want to talk about that time because it bears a lot of resemblance to the time when Chesterton wrote The Man Who Was Thursday, uh, which he comments on, especially in the first chapter and in the poem that opens the book. Um, yeah. Both times had this like fin de siècle mixture of ennui and I don't know, something else in French, like uh, de- decadence, you know, um, the late nineties was a weird era, like in American, like, culture like on the one hand there's like this ambient like francis fukuyama end of history atmosphere you know there's this facile brittle confidence that all the big problems have been solved cold war is over liberal democracy has won but it no longer really felt like a big victory there's a and you you couldn't put your finger on what was weird and there's like a second feature of this it's kind of like feeling of is that all there is you know and kind of like boredom and that in the like the sh- pop culture sor- shorthand for that is like stuff like seinfeld like the sitcom about nothing yeah. or fight club which men are so bored that they just want to beat themselves up because they got nothing to do um and then that's the third strand of 1999 was like we know something terrible is going to happen soon some catastrophe is going to happen and that kind of took pop culture like in terms of pop culture, it was like, oh, Y2K or whatever. But really, like, what it was, like, the cracks started happening. is like anodyne vision, like, when the chaos of the election in 2000. And then, you know, September 11th happened, and American character changed permanently, catastrophically. Um, and so I'm going into this because Chesterton published The Man Who Was Thursday, like, in 1908, which is a similarly culturally exhausted time. 
the old ideas felt worn out. Everyone kind of sensed maybe half wanted a catastrophe to come and turn the page. Virginia Woolf famously said, on or about uh, December 1910, human character changed. And then in 1914, World War I started and everyone got what they wanted, a catastrophe that put the old order to bed. And The Man Who Is Thursday, like Fight Club, is like a document that relies on this idea of exhaustion with the old order uh, for its power. Although the two stories don't have much other in common, except for two things, a, a, a delight in cartoonish violence and, <laughs> uh, and they're total dude books. Like there are no women characters of any note in either of the books, except in the kind of like a per peripheral to the action kind of way. Yeah. Um, but also intersects with what's going on with literature at the time in another way. Everyone was really concerned about anarchists and bomb yeah. outrages at the time, just as like people were concerned about like Islamo-fascism, you know, at the post 9-11 time. And, you know, it was an anarchist who took out uh, Franz Ferdinand in, in 1914, it started World War I. And the year before this book came out, there was a book by Joseph Conrad called The Secret Agent, um, which is about the same thing in, uh, about like... Uh, they're both about anarchist conspiracies, turn of the century London, both have a double agent as a main character. Uh, and both of them, like there's fake anarchists, but this one is almost like a parody or a transfiguration of the secret agent. Um, anyway, I, this is all, I, I just want to do this wind up just to get you where I was feeling at times. This book came to my hands during this time. I felt frustrated stalemate living with my parents after I'd lived on my own in DC and Tokyo. I, I, I just, I devoured everything I could of Chesterton after I read it. Um, and, there's diminishing returns in reading all of Chesterton, but like this <laughs> book always remains fresh. Uh, it, def it influenced the direction of my writing. Like this, Miyazaki Spirited Away and the Mike Lee movie Topsy Turvy all came around the same time and were really influential to my artistic development. So that is my, I, I, I want to put it in that broad context to start out. That's a lot of that. Yeah, that's a, a lot of context. And... <laughs> sorry, sorry. Was that too much? No, <laughs> not at all. Really good. <laughs> Not at all. It's just uh, now you've got me casting my mind back to the end of the 90s. and Wasn't um, it a weird time? It was a very weird time. I was, uh, Drew, I'm a little older than you, I guess, but we were both yeah. teenagers at the time. I was born in 1990, so like, I remember <laughs> the late 90s, but I had a very Great. different perspective. You yeah. know? Like, I was a child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was 25. So, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, That's so, hilarious. So what's it about? Should we talk about what it's about? Like more broad yes, yeah. absolutely. I, Drew, do you want to... I, I feel like I, I want you to tell us what the first 80 pages of the book is about. Yeah. Because the last 20 pages are about something very different. <laughs> first 80 pages uh, okay. is no, no spoiler. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it, it is a story of a, an undercover, uh, an English undercover police officer who is recruited to infiltrate a global cabal of diabolic anarchists. And he manipulates his way in through poetry at first. And then he, yeah. he kind of challenges the, the masculinity of his adversary and, you know, through bravado ends up being nominated to being on the ruling council of the anarchists. Yeah, which and each all, member... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and they're all named after days of the week, and he is given the title of Thursday. And and as he gets deeper and deeper in, he has encounters with each of the other... Or each of the other weekdays and Saturday, and slowly discovers, I am not the only one who's an undercover cop. In fact... We're all undercover cops. Okay, that's the twist. 
uh, right? <laughs> it's, well, it's one of see, them. It's one of them. I, I didn't, I don't think of that as the twist. I think of Sunday as the twist. Okay. Right. That, Sunday being the leader of this. And, and uh, I think this is, this maybe this is a, a really interesting uh, conversation point because I come at this book as a, a still practicing Catholic in my thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never even thought about this book in that sort of cultural weariness context. I mm-hmm. thought of this book as a religious revelation context. Yeah. And, and so to me, kind of the, the granular plot details of the story almost don't matter because mm-hmm. it's that, that culminating point that I won't talk about yet uh, in <laughs> the, in the final act that the book just becomes something entirely different. This is so, uh, so interesting. So James yeah. is coming at this book from a kind of social or cultural perspective. Drew, for you, it's a religious book. Uh, well, and for me, it's an ideological one with all of the the discussions, especially toward the beginning of the book. Oh, uh, I, really? I, yeah, I, I, th- I think I'm not totally social, cultural, social. Like, I, I think oh, okay. the, the full title is The Man Who Is Thursday, A Nightmare. Um, and that's uh-huh. a way to that's the way to approach it because it's yeah. dreamlike. It's sometimes nonsensical. Like like it's it's like summer one minute and then one day later it's snowing. You, you, you know like uh, it, it, it the, the 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 times don't work out. Like it it it, it it's nonsensical, but it's full of dread. But it also has a lot of joy. And this novel gets away with it. It, it would be foolish <laughs> to try to emulate this novel. Uh, it has a real oh, yeah. light lightning in a bottle quality that Chesterton never quite touched again. Uh, Chesterton does say he met a psychoanalyst. It said that he prescribed the book as a corrective to his morbid <laughs> patients. And he, fa- because you meet all of these grotesque people who are the other, yeah. you know, I guess we've let the, the, the cat out of the bag. All the other weekdays and Saturday are other policemen. And but they, they keep getting surprised when the next one turns out to be a policeman too. And the next one, the next one. And all these people who seem to be grotesque or weird or freaks all turn out to be normal, decent guys doing their best. And, um, and so it has this feeling of dipping in from the ordinary world into a nightmare and then emerging from it, like transform, like healthier and happier. And I remember reading somewhere else that another therapist, like later on, like, like um, recommended Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the same reason, because it, mm. it helped those patients. In the same way, the story starts, ordinary world, uh-huh. the worst thing in the world happens, the world blows up. But by the end of the book, like you're reconciled to that awful thing. And actually, you're kind of having, having a splendid time. And that's another lightning in a bottle book by a British yeah. man who could never quite recapture that early magic again either. Um, yeah. And so, but like the, that whole twist of like one after another, they keep thinking, oh, okay, the two of us are secretly policemen. Well, the rest of them are definitely evil. Okay. The three of us are okay. Now the rest of them are, are the really bad ones. Four of us. And, and it's kind of Lucy in the football again and again. And like when yeah. I read it, like I was just on board for it. I was, I, I was convinced. Oh yeah. Okay. Only three of them are policemen. Okay. Only four of them are policemen. <laughs> like I'm a very gullible person. Uh, um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know when we should reveal the, the big uh, joke in the book, but um yeah, but I think like, for me, it's 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 very much a metaphysical book. That's why I like it. it it's an argumentative yeah. book. It talks about what is the nature of the world. So I wanted to set up the social and cultural thing, but I do want to talk about this. The reason this is so exciting is it's a book about the nature of the world. Yes. And what does it say? I, I don't know. Is this too big a question? <laughs> what does it say about the nature of the world? Because it it 
one of the things that Chesterton seems to do really well in this book is uh, he, he seems very comfortable with contradiction. Um, yeah, his, that's his characters and their ideas. Oh, and, um, and it's, it, it's something that I feel like to, in our day today, contradiction is unacceptable. Um, we have uh, kind of a, a weird ideological purity contest going on all mm-hmm. over the world where, you know, nobody seems to be willing to, accept contradiction mm-hmm. whereas in this book it's like it's it's shot all through i don't know what do you guys think yeah it's it's unavoidable and i i think one of the things i really love about the progression of it is the unreality of it the world feels blurred mm-hmm. yeah like the setting feels blurred it's so fast you never have a chance to get your bearings in the story in the settings you just boom we're going here we're going here we're going here we're going here and then we have this one particular moment that has always just stood out in my mind when they're fleeing through the countryside and they're running through the forest. Yes. And there's this contrast of the light and the shadows. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and it's like, I, I feel in that moment, Chesterton is making one of his main points in the book that there, there is no singularity there's no um lack of contradiction anywhere the people chasing them are at turns obscured and then cast in sharp relief he uses the word chiaroscuro mm-hmm. mm. and chesterton was also an artist so like he he knows oh you can tell this is all very yeah. painterly very visual you'll, you'll have to explain yeah. what that means drew uh so it's it's when things are like thrown in really sharp relief light like and that. shadow yeah yeah strong contrast of mm. light and shadow and so in that moment, right, we are, it's one of the most tense moments in the whole book, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, they, it feels hopeless. They're being ringed in They're, you know, um, and then as the scene progresses, we find out, of course, again, there's a contradiction <laughs> there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's, Surprise. I mean, that's the thing. It's so overheated. What's that? What, no, I just no, heard no, a, a weird voice. On. Uh, oh, oh. Uh, um, like, <laughs> yeah, that's a... probably me. Let's let's be honest. My voice is just <laughs> odd. It's just weird. Uh, um, like, it, okay, that that scene in the forest, like, because uh, I want to talk about how argumentative he is and how there's great dialogue in it. People are always having philosophical arguments in a really mm. embracing and fun way. Um, but you're right; it's a legit adventure story. You know, I think we have to like, to sell people on this. There's a chase. There's yeah. disguises. There's secret codes. There's a duel. There's funny banter. There's dark counsels. There's like a spooky physical impossibilities. You know, like what seems like a feeble, frail old man is like so- somehow chasing our hero all over London. You know, or <laughs> they're in a duel. The hero's sword keeps going into one guy again and again, but the guy isn't bleeding. It's like what's going on? Like, uh, it, like Kingsley Amos wrote that it's not quite a political bad dream. Not a metaphysical thriller, not a cosmic joke in the form of a spy novel, but it has something of all three. And I think that gets it. Like, it, it, it's, mm. it, it really stands between a lot of things. And the um, and it's really funny, too. I think we have to say that, too. Mm. But the, um, the um, But this overheated aspect of it, he does things that people can't get away with. And I think, like, that scene that you talked about in the forest is one of them. Like, um, the, 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 imagine trying to get away with writing this now. 
such were the <laughs> such were the six men who had sworn to destroy the world. And then it skipped over a little bit and go. Each figure seemed to be somehow in the borderland of things, just as their theory was in the borderland of thought. He knew that each one of these men stood at an extreme end, so to speak, of some wild road of reasoning. He could only fancy, as in some old world fable, that if a man went westward to the end of the world, he would find something, say a tree, that was more or less than a tree, a tree possessed by a spirit. And if he went east to the end of the world, he would find something else that was not wholly itself, a tower, perhaps, but the very shape was wicked. So these figures seem to stand up violent and unaccountable against an ultimate horizon, visions from the verge. Like, it's like, that is so over the top. It's like Lovecraft is over the top, you, you know? Um, well, this and, is why I made my David Lynch joke at the beginning. Yeah. Like, this is, <laughs> it's so absurd. And, and so there's a place for restraint and tastefulness and subtlety in literature. <laughs> but there's also a liberation in casting all that off and putting the pedal to the metal and going whole hog. And the thing about going whole hog is it's more courageous than exhibiting taste or restraint. Because if you're restrained and tasteful and you're trying to kind of hide what you really think, the worst you can be is boring. Uh, yep. But if you go whole hog, you turn it up to 11 every scene, you say what you really think, even though you know it's a little bit ludicrous and you're, you're not able to carry it off, you are loud and ridiculous and it's much worse. It's a bigger risk. Um, and so um, that, it, so, so, so few authors do that it's really refreshing when somebody does it and they get away with it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Like the, just the, the premise of what the antagonists want, like they're not just anarchists. Yeah. They are, they're beyond anarchists. Like you, it, it, they don't just want to abolish like uh government or civilization, something. Government. Yeah. They say we want to abolish God. We do yeah. not only <laughs> want to upset a few despotisms and police regulations. That sort of anarchism does exist, but it is a mere branch of the nonconformists. We dig deeper and we blow you higher. We wish to deny all these arbitrary <laughs> distinctions of vice and virtue, honor and treachery upon which mere rebels base themselves. The silly sentimentalists of the French Revolution talked of the rights of man. We hate rights as we hate wrongs. We have abolished <laughs> right and wrong. Like, and uh, so I, I have, um, right here, uh, Wisdom and Innocence by Joseph Pierce, you know, kind of a, a biography of, of Chesterton. And, and Pierce notes, you, he's like, this isn't a amorality or immorality, it's anti-morality. That yeah. last line, we hate rights as we hate wrongs, we have abolished right and wrong. You know, it's like that they they want to go beyond the idea of good and evil and discover something worse. And yeah, and, and, and I think that's why the comedy works so well because you need a little bit of comedy to take the air out of this because it's so over the top. I think of like the, the nihilists in uh, The Big Lebowski, you know, <laughs> we, are, we, are we, are, we are nihilists, Mr. Lebowski. Uh, um, <laughs> like, uh, um, like he... Like he and Chesterton, when he wrote this, like he was having a nervous breakdown when he was like, in art school and he of this kind of pessimism of like, what is, you know, the world like? And he and it, that's why this has a nightmarish feeling, but he's kind of like writing himself out of depression. He's writing himself out of a nightmare. He's writing himself out of believing these things. And that's why it has so much power. And that's why like when he finally kind of settled into orthodoxy and like became a total Catholic. And, he, and then at that point, he was just like churning out Father Brown mysteries. He was so certain of himself that his polemics just became mechanical, you know, but here he's really struggling. He's really on the knife edge of one worldview and another worldview. And that's why this book works so well. Hmm, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's uh, that that's what gives the beginning of the novel. Um, it's uh, urgency, I guess. Yeah. Uh, is, is the conversations between 
our main character and his uh, kind of opponent in the Gregory, anarchist. Yeah. Yeah, Gregory, that's right. The fake anarchist, who turns out to be the real Gregory anarchist. Lucian, or yes. Bruce, yeah. Um, Lucian Gregory. Yeah. Other way around. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I really, I loved the first part of the novel because I felt like I had some grasp on on what you're talking about james like his uh, his kind of teetering you know which way is he gonna go is one way or the other or one of you said that <laughs> anyway it, yeah um and and then by the end of the book it becomes uh i hesitate to say religious because it seems like it goes further than that it's it's more like what is human nature and what is uh what 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 is society and togetherness and and how you know how do we relate to the people around us should we talk about the ending? Uh, sorry, Drew, do you want? Do you have something before we spoil it? I, I do. So both of you so far have brought up the word nature. And I think that's really fascinating because in an interview, like, like it, and this ties back to the idea of contradictions in this, Chesterton himself was never really capable of elucidating what he was getting at in this book. That's he why he's so good. contradicted <laughs> himself in interviews. Yeah. And in one, at one point in an interview... Yeah, he was asked to explain the nature of Sunday, the, this enigmatic character. And he said, you can take him to stand for nature, capital N, nature, as distinguished from God. Yet in the very same interview, he stated that, quote, you tear off the mask of nature and you find God. Yeah, I mean, Chesterton loves paradox. He, he loves epigrams. He has this kind of sub Wildian wit about him that is like almost is ninety percent wild, but he he turns it towards a different kind of target yeah. uh, that than yeah. Wildwood. And um, yeah, yeah, and it, it's stuff like that that makes him so interesting to read at first until it starts to become a shtick. Um, and uh, but I, I whenever I come back to Chesterton after a year or so, like, and I'm not worried about him, it's very like ah, I love that kind of stuff. Where he says, oh, you tear off the mask of nature and it's God, and then like. After he's talked to like that, and you, you've gone through a couple of books, where it's like, oh boy, it, it becomes wearying. But <laughs> I, 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 I do love him in a way that in ways that I love few other authors because of how idiosyncratic he is, um, and how he says things that like other authors don't say. He's got a definite argument to make all the time, um, and and he, like, you were talking, uh, uh, Craig, at the beginning about the argument that they're having in the. Uh, in the garden. Can I just read like my favorite part of that argument? Yeah. Uh, um, so they're, they're, they're talking about like uh, Gregory, who's a guy who's like saying, I'm a, I'm an anarchist. And he's trying to convince everybody. there, like, I'm really an anarchist. I'm so badass. He's what we nowadays we call an edgelord. Right. Yes, and he goes, absolutely. An artist is identical with an anarchist. He cried. You might transpose the words anywhere. An anarchist is an artist. The, the, the man who throws a bomb is an artist because he prefers a great moment to everything. Um, you know, blah, blah, blah. A poet d dislikes in disorder only. If it were not so, the most poetical thing in the world would be the Underground Railway. And then our hero, Mr. Syme, says, so it is. You know, and, and Gregory says, what are you talking about? You know, um, they, I'm just skipping ahead. They, when you're on the train, they, um, they, they, people are uh, they upset. They're, they're bored with life because they know the train is always going to arrive at Victoria sta Station. He's like, wouldn't they be so happy if instead of the train arriving at Victoria Station, it showed up at Baker Street? And then Syme says, it is you who are unpoetical. If what you say of clerks is true, they can only be prosaic, boring, as, as your poetry. The rare, strange thing is to hit the mark. 
the gross obvious thing is to miss it. We think it is epical when a man with one wild arrow strikes a distant bird. Is it not also epical when man with one wild engine strikes a distant station? Chaos is dull, because in chaos, a train might indeed go anywhere to, from Baker Street to Baghdad. But man is a magician, and his whole magic is this, is that he does say Victoria. And lo, it is Victoria. Uh, and he says, like, oh, to take away your poetry. Give me, like, the railway like uh, schedules. That's poetic. Yeah, um, the... <laughs> every time a train comes in, I feel it's broken through batteries of besiegers, and man has won a battle against chaos. Nobody talks like this. It's great. And, and like, in literature, you don't have in the, these kind of, like, he does it with such energy and confidence that even if you don't totally agree with him, you are swept along and you love it. And well, it's one very of my similar favorite to, little uh... literary jokes that Chesterton makes in this entire book is actually the very first line of that quote uh, or, of Syme's reply. He says, it is you who are unpoetical, replied the poet Syme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the fact that he throws, he doesn't say replied Syme. Yeah. He, he, the poet son. <laughs> that yeah. is perfect. He does. Uh, the the begin, beginning of this book, reading it, reminded me of another author's shelf uh, episode that we did with Mary Robinette Kowal, and she chose The Dispossessed by Ursula Le Guin. Um, and it, for anybody who's read The Dispossessed, uh, I, I, my critique of that one is that it wasn't as as condensed and fiery as this one, where she kind of, she really... L- is quite long-winded in her mm-hmm. character's interactions. And in this, it's kind of like you're saying, James, everybody, it's all turned up to 11. Everybody's got their hair on fire in every scene. And they're, you know, nobody goes halfway with uh, their, the points that they're making. And I found, so I, I guess I'm partly comparing the two because they're both, they're both message books, even if Chesterton didn't quite know what his message was. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it feels very much like a message book. Um, but he's he's a little more sharp and concise uh, than Le Guin was. And so I think it's I, because I reading this one. Yeah, I think it's because he's a journalist. Uh, journalists are almost always really good fiction writers. Uh, Tom Wolfe, mm. journalist, and so he's a good fiction writer. They 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 have the nose for a detail. They've had to transcribe in interviews a lot of dialogue, so they know how people talk and they know how to edit it down to make it punchy. Um, journalists often make really good uh, screenwriters and novelists. No, they know how to not bury the lead. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking of burying the lead, well, no, that doesn't quite work. But let's talk about the end of the book, okay? I'm officially lifting our ban on spoilers. Okay. Uh, so if anybody hasn't read it, please go do so. Um, it's it you just, I don't know. I kind of feel like I, I need to give one last recommendation for somebody who hasn't read the book it's crazy it's bizarre it's lynchian it's uh, you will not have any idea what what happened this is a book that needs rereads but that's okay because it's only 100 pages long it's you know it's anyway okay also it's also something that uh you can't believe it was written over 100 years ago it seems so fresh and i keep saying bracing tonic energetic those are the words for it and vivid and the dialogue is so sharp and pungent and uh and like bat 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 back and forth it just it 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 really uh yeah it, it doesn't feel like it was written 120 years ago i fully agree um all right so the final act of the book shifts gears it totally shifts gears uh well hard um 
the the final act of the book they're they're in france they're trying to outrun this conspiracy of people that are coming to get them it's so these are all the weekday people yeah um who think you know okay so oh my gosh the whole world is in on it and they're getting chased around and they they find out that the secretary of the the, monday um, yeah yeah monday he's after them and it turns out he's part of the he's a scotland yard detective as well and it's the final kind of joke in that way um but but then we, you know, we have our moment with Sunday, who's this kind of, it's a chase scene, but it's the weirdest chase scene I've ever seen in my entire life. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Go on. But before go on, that go on. chase scene, like uh, Sunday, they, they all go to confront Sunday, right? It's like, okay, it, it's like six of us against him, you know, oh, but it's, it's Sunday, you know, oh, what are we going to yeah. do? It, it, so the, he's like, Sunday is always presented as this larger than life character. They go and they confront him. And each one of these men got confronted, got uh, kind of um, hired to be on this uh, secret police uh, by a man in a in dark, a dark room, room with his yeah. back to them. And at the end, Sunday says, I'm the guy who hired you all. <laughs> and, and, and then he jumps off the balcony and he, they start this chase through London. Right. And he breaks into the zoo and gets on an elephant <laughs> and, and they're chasing him on this elephant. And then Sunday keeps throwing back at them pieces of paper that, that, that one that seem, seemingly is caught by each day of the week. But when they read it, it seems to be something that's like insulting to them, but completely incomprehensible. Uh, um, and then like Sunday gets in a balloon, right? And he oh, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. and they chase him over the countryside and they, he lures them into this supernatural pageant or party, right? Or gala, um, and which is, is that each of the days of the week, they put on a, a costume, a costume. Yeah. And, and, but the costume reveals who they are. It doesn't, you know, obscure who they are. And they, they kind of go through this very um, Lynchian dreamlike scene in which they are truly become themselves. And then it's kind of like, it seems like it was all just an ecstatic vision that had happened in a moment. And our main character is just walking down the street with the, the edgelord anarchist from the end. Is that kind of like what you say the end yeah, of the book it- is like? Yeah, well, it's that that's the one of the weirdest things. It, it it doesn't have to be taken this way, but it it certainly reads like a oh, it was all a dream. Um, right. The whole book was a dream, which normally would be infuriating if the yes. dream didn't actually mean something, right? Or the night. I mean, Lynch does case. it. Yeah, Lynch can get away with it. You know, he I, he did you, it in Mulholland Drive and arguably right. in uh, um uh, uh oh god, uh, Lost Highway. Like he does have that like it was all a dream and somehow he gets what that Wizard of Oz and this get away with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh it, it, don't don't try this at home, kids, right? It's, yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> but I there's there's something I want to talk about um as far as the three levels theory that we talk about a lot on this this podcast. Um and so I'll give everybody the quick rundown again. Um, this is something we've talked about on the Legendarium for a long time. The stories uh, can and often do exist on one of three um, levels. And uh, this is the wrong way because I, I don't actually think of it hierarchically. But level one being the, the story itself, the events, the actual surface level, what's going on in the story. Level two would be social and political commentary, uh, kind of 30,000 foot view uh, of, uh, yeah, sociopolitical stuff. And then level three would be the personal and interpersonal. What does it mean to go- be a good person? How do you think of yourself? How do you interact with those closest to you? That sort of thing, right? Um, he, by the time you get to the end of the book, he has hit 
all three, as you say, James, with the dial turned up to 11. He he doesn't just a, a lot of stories will exist primarily on one level, right? So you go watch uh, Pacific Rim. That's my favorite example of a level one story. And it'll have a few scenes in there where, you know, the characters are bonding or they're, you know, they're trying to learn some lesson. But really, it's just a little bit of oil to make the machine go so you can get to the next scene with monsters <laughs> yeah. punching robots. I think, it's, um, I think it's the first time anybody's ever used the words Pacific Rim and favorite in the same sentence. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, don't get me started. I love that movie. Um, okay. Anyway, no, but uh, but so that one it lives on that level one plane and then it'll kind of dip into the other ones but really it's just it's it's not meant to do that in here he when he is existing on any of those three levels he goes hard um and one of the things i really liked was by the end of the book you find out that they're being chased across the countryside by these you know kind of faceless mobs um and it turns out you know they, they're saying oh my gosh they can't all be anarchists um, they've, they've unmasked us. They're trying to kill us, this global conspiracy. Um, and then it turns out that everybody in the world was actually thought that they were the anarchists, uh, you know, yeah. these, uh, the protagonists. Oh, they think we're anarchists and that's why they're trying to kill us. Um, it's a comedy. It's, it's ludicrous. It, it yeah. is. It is. But I think there's something there. It, it is funny. I, I did laugh out loud when I got to that portion, but there's something in that kind of level three or, or level two um, uh, where he's, I feel like Chesterton is in a way making the point that wh whoever you're interacting with, uh, whatever their station is, they're not your enemy. They're, you're mm -hmm. probably misunderstanding each other. You, you know, maybe a little more communication, a little more charity, whatever, something. Uh, but everybody seems to be misunderstanding each other all the time. Uh, because they just assume that they know the motivations of those around them, uh, something yeah. along those lines. Oh, I, I think you're it, completely spot on because the way the book ends is with these two adversaries from the beginning, uh, Gabriel and uh, Gabriel Simon, Lucy and Gregory, becoming friends and having yeah. a friendly conversation and walking down the road together in the morning, and and like, uh, and the entire book is this progression of understanding and and not only like shining light on facts and knowledge whatever but understanding that you will not always have <clears throat> that light shown on the people you find yourself pitted against or or you know interacting with that there's always going to be something obscured and you should not take that obscuring as a sign of like enmity. Yeah. And also like, it, yeah, it's, it's, this book is all about enemies turning into friends. You know, everything yeah. the main character, he thinks all these people on the council are against me. One, but, but they're also unmasked in the most kind of ridiculous ways. Like one of them is just like, Oh, the fact that he's wearing dark glasses makes him evil. And as soon as he takes them <laughs> off, it's like, Oh, now I know this guy is good. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like yeah. such a, has the simplicity of a child's story in the same way that Star Wars does. It's, it's like, maybe this is like the, the man who is seriously a Star Wars, and I haven't read The Dispossessed, but maybe that's more like Andor, you know, more like, like serious and long <laughs> and subtle, but doesn't have the same punch, you know? Uh, um, and both of them have their own pleasures. Uh, um, yeah. but yeah, or, or just like, uh, yeah, they're all unmasked in, in like just 
uh, uh, the kind of goofiest ways. And and people just say, oh, I just knew, I just know he's good somehow because of his accent, because of, you know, the way he says this or that. And so, yeah, I, um, I, I really enjoyed that, that kind of like feeling of, that's why it's a comedy. Comedies have happy endings, right? Um, And it kind of like all kind of comes together in a, a, a reconciliation. Mm, which is awesome in a book called uh, subtitled a nightmare right yeah um <laughs> it's a nightmare a, a comedy <laughs> um, but you're right it does t- turn into an insane cartoon at the end doesn't it oh my like, gosh like, with, with, with that <laughs> the elephants and the hot air balloon and the it's just bananas <laughs> it's so i i was uh okay let me let me back up a little bit and give a little context uh we're reading joe abercrombie right now uh, I'm going through the uh, first law trilogy and I'm, I'm in the second book and, and I'm struggling to care, <laughs> honestly. Sorry, <laughs> Joe. Um, I'm struggling to care, but Ryan, uh, my co-host, he kept, he keeps saying like, you know, I'm thoroughly enjoying my reread because I have the full picture in front of me. I know how it's going to end. I know what the twists and turns are. And now I get to see what Abercrombie is doing with the trilogy. Um, and that in, in that case, it's frustrating me. But in this case, I feel like it's okay uh, that this book mm-hmm. has to be reread and probably yeah. has to be reread 10 times before its secrets are finally, you know, begin to reveal <laughs> themselves, right? Um, but it annoys me less here, maybe just because it is so fun, because, you know, a teenage boy could pick it up and just read a detective story um, yeah. on top of everything else, right? So yeah, you I know, have... I, my I, I I do a podcast with my friend Matt, and he says his his like drama is how it is, and genre is how it feels, and I think that's true here. Like like the like Star Wars is how it feels, but like Andor is how it is, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Mm. I, I don't like like the, this is how it feels uh, to be to be young. You, you know, in, in many ways, like a young man's book. Oh. It's like like everything is turned up to eleven, and like when they. Gabriel is like walking down the streets of London at night and it's written in this beautiful, but over the top and kind of shamelessly over the top way. But that's how it feels to walk around in a city when you're 23, you know? And so, um, it's so when Chesterton does things like have an elephant chase or a balloon chase, he's signaling to you, I'm going to go outside of reality, you know, here. And I'm, and I'm, and I, and so that's the only way that you can build up to that pageant, that dreamlike pageant by kind of, progressively breaking reality more and more. So we get to this part where you'll accept this, you know, um, it, it, it's a, it's a promise. Um, it's a, it's, it's, it's an expectation setting. Um, and I don't think we could have gotten away with an elephant chase at the beginning of the book. You, you know, we, we had to have <laughs> no. all of these <laughs> other things first of just kind of like, it, it starts out, it's just a normal garden party with two guys having a, a, a philosophical argument. You couldn't be more normal and it just gets more, they just break reality more and more and just becomes more and more joyous and energetic, uh, but also nightmarish. And yeah, I think it's because that's how it feels. That's the thrill of, in your mind. If, even if that's not what's physically happening around you. Interesting. Yeah. And, Interesting. and the culmination of this book is the most unreal. And, and that is, in my opinion, kind of the final, the final twist, right? That it's, it's not just that Sunday was both the man in the dark room and the anarchist leader. leader of the anarchists, but in not just in a symbolic sense, but in what appears to be a literal sense, Sunday is Christ. You know, they ask, who Chesterton are you? Chesterton didn't I say that. Sabbath. Yeah, yeah he then, does say that. Then, 
he he ends you know uh, when Gregory shows up and and he's he has this incredible rant and he ends with "Have you ever suffered?" and uh, and we have this final quote as he gazed the great face grew to an awful size grew larger than the colossal mask of Memnon which had made him scream as a child it grew larger and larger filling the whole sky then everything went black only in the blackness before it entirely destroyed his brain he seemed to hear a distant voice sing a commonplace text that he had heard somewhere can ye drink of the cup that i drink of a quote yeah this from is Christ. that yeah, I think this is the Job. This is what makes it reminds me of Job here. I, I think it's like you know, Job says, "You made me suffer all this," and and, and, and God says, "Hey, can you create a big sea beast the way I did?" <laughs> you, you know, uh, like uh, um, like uh, uh, they go, "You can't." Oh, okay. Well, then shut up. Um, and which is, yeah. it, it, it's, <laughs> and uh, and that's what this it, your it, your impression, it, by the way, is uncanny. Just. <laughs> I think I was quoting from the King James there, uh, um, but um, yeah, it, it's 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 very much like you get brought to this level of kind of uh, like, like like all the days of the week are saying like, why did you do this to us? Why are you putting us through this? And then basically Sunday says, "I'm God." You know, this is the Book of Job, um, and it, like um, it, it, it was a great. Uh, he kind of says that earlier. He's like, I, what am I? Roared the president. That's Sunday. Uh, and rose slowly to an incredible height, like some enormous wave about to arch above them and break. You want to know who I am, do you? Bull, you are a man of science. Grub in the roots of those trees and find out the truth about them. Sime, you're a poet. Stare at the morning clouds. But I tell you that, it, that you will have found out the truth of the last tree in the topmost cloud before the truth about me. You will understand the sea and I shall still be a riddle. You shall know what the stars are and not know what I am. Since the beginning of the world, all men have hunted me like a wolf, kings and sages and poets and lawgivers, all the churches and all the philosophies, but I have never been caught yet and the skies will fall in the time I turn to bay. I have given them a good run for their money and I will now. That is, does not seem Christ-like to me. That sounds like it pan. That sounds like the universe itself saying, I will always be one step ahead of you. Um, this doesn't have like the kind of loving kindness that I associate with Christ. Maybe this is like Jehovah. This is like Old Testament God. I was, gonna, I was just going to say, like. yeah, you're reading the wrong half of the Bible <laughs> for this one. <laughs> I, well, so I, I think this ties into that central theme of contradiction, right? We, we have mm -hmm. the, uh, when the secretary finally stands up and he gets his moment to rail against Sunday. And, yeah. and he says, you know, uh, I know you are contentment, optimism. What do they call the thing? An ultimate reconciliation. Well, I am not reconciled. If you were the man in the dark room, why were you also Sunday, an offense to the sunlight? If you were from the first, our father and our friend, why were you also our greatest enemy? We wept, we fled in terror. The iron entered into our souls, and you are the peace of God. Oh, I can forgive God his anger, though it destroyed nations, but I cannot forgive him his peace. Chesterton never touched that note again, and that is Chesterton's problem. Chesterton wrote his greatest book in 1908, and then he became rec reconciled with his faith, reconciled with his problems, and he was never able to really hit the mystery of the book of Job again um, because he got too comfortable. He became the thing, he became the villain of this book, the thing that that guy's railing against. Um, <laughs> In a, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess so. I, as I, as you guys are talking about who is Sunday, and there's that quote, you know, you'll never understand me. You can, uh, men and kings have hunted forever. 
Um, when I got to that so section, over the top. I, I know it's amazing. Um, I didn't read it as, as God at, at first. I thought that's what he was building up to, but then as it continues, I, I wondered, you know, you mentioned you know, maybe it's the universe. The word I came up with was truth. Um, mm-hmm. it is the truth and people have been searching for the truth forever. Um, and, and they've never caught up to it. And yet it governs all of our lives. Um, even if we don't understand it. Yeah. I think if you were to ask G.K. Chesterton, he would say that God and truth are one and the same. Well, sure. I mean, yeah, that's that systematizing. That's that systematizing <laughs> Chesterton from later on, not the searching genius for when he was a kid. Like, um, the, there's a philosopher, John Gray, who wrote about this book and about Chesterton in general. Chesterton, I want to get into this later on because he's a problematic character. He's anti-Semitic. He's a polemical guy. He is one of those people who is who is like a weird right-wing person. His brother, Cecil Chesterton, is kind of like the Ben Shapiro of his time and like uh, or the Rush Limbaugh of his time and Hilaire Belloc. And he was taking all the wrong positions and really being awful to Jewish people and as many Catholics, you know, were at the time. And he's a he's a like we think of Chesterton, oh, he's this jolly, kind of drunken, you know flinger of epigrams, but he was, there's a bit of a darkness to him too. And the, I guess the man who was Thursday was kind of like before he kind of ossified into that. Um, and I think the novel, so John Gray wrote about this and he's like, the man who was Thursday was subtitled Nightmare, uh, a coda which indicates the author's unease. The, the, the novel gives a lie to his Christian faith in a meaningful universe. And he kind of goes on for a bit and then he says, some have tried to interpret the man who was Thursday as a type of Christian allegory, the world that describes however, has more in common with the interminable labyrinth of Kafka's castle. In the orderly Christian cosmos, which Chesterton wanted to believe, nothing is finally tragic, still less absurd. The world is a divine comedy. The ultimate significance is never in doubt. In The Man Who Is Thursday, the world is illegible. It may be nonsensical. This was a nightmare he struggled, for the most part, successfully to forget. Producing a succession of wearisome polemics and mechanical paradoxes, he spent the rest of his life denying the vision that informed his greatest work. That is my take on it, too. Ultimately, for me, one of the, the triumphs of this book, again, having only read it once and not knowing what the hell is going on in this story, <laughs> um, but doing the best I can. One of the triumphs of this book is that because of the contradictions we're talking about and because of um, the, <laughs> you know, we have to talk about the 30,000 foot view. How about the universal view, Right where he's blowing it out to what is God, what is truth, what is, you know, uh, all of those things. Because he never quite comes down on one side or the other with a lot of these questions and because it's so open to interpretation, we have three people here on this podcast who all draw wildly (laughs) different interpretations and meanings from the same text. Uh, And, uh, you know, you've quoted a few of the, the critics who have written about it as well. They all have different interpretations of it. Um, and, and isn't that, in that way, doesn't this book do a great job of, of portraying the chaos that is life, um, that is thought, that is ideas, that is the universe, uh, and, and all of our interactions with each other because, uh, because you can't come to necessarily the one true interpretation of the man yeah. who was Thursday, right? That, that's why it's literature, right? I mean, because it, yeah. it, it, because it's a, 
undecidable question, you know, uh, that, because you can't come down anywhere. That's why it's not just a genre piece. Uh, I think that's why I will read it and reread this until I die. The same way I'll watch Lynch movies until I die, because there's an undecidability about them. Um, yeah. And it feels like there's an endless mystery to them. And I think it comes well, we, out of the fact that for him, it was a mystery too. Like he himself was not, was unsettled. Right. And that's, I, I think there is um, some value to unsettling or to, I, I should say to settling yourself. Um, you know, he, James, it sounds like the way Chesterton came down, you don't approve of a lot of the, the certainties that he came to. Mm-hmm. Um, but at a certain point, we all have to come to our own. Don't that, we? Maybe we that's a tragedy. We can't all live our lives in a, a Lynchian nightmare, um, <laughs> you know, from from birth to death. You know, at some point we do have to decide what, uh-huh. how we're going to live our lives, how we're going to think about things. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, uh, I mean, that, and that is why this book is so great because it grapples with these issues. It's, it's, it's a short book. It's, it reads like a boy's own adventure novel and it, and it, it's over the top and overheated, and yet it grapples with these big issues in a big way. Um, and in, in a, but even though it seems like an adventurous story, and I think that, that, that that's that's something pretty amazing. I think. Yeah. Um, I yeah, think the fact that 115 years later we're sitting down having this conversation. Yeah. You know, that that's that's a rare thing. Um, well, I think there's this. Um, here, I, I read a couple books after I read this, to, reread this to get uh, ready for this. And I realized that one of the things that made it so good is that it seems like there are a lot of novels. There's just kind of like this view from nowhere about them. You know, they, they don't seem to be standing for anything other than maybe the power of storytelling. You know, they're mm-hmm. not making sharp uh, claims about the universe and defending them with vigor. Um, and or, or they're not saying counterintuitive things. Um, unless you're like going like William Burroughs or something like that, you know what I mean? But like, just like the, your standard piece of literary fiction is just kind of like, is just basically about, okay, we're all kind of believe more or less in the, you know, uh, consensus reality of, you know, uh, you know, late capitalism, liberal democracy, uh, Freudian psychology, whatever. And um, the fact that this takes a, a left turn from all that is what makes it so fun. Um like uh, it has very particular philosophical commitments, um, things it wants to convince you about. Um, and I think C.S. Lewis is like this too. And it's like why they're so fun to read and why they're so wearisome in the end. Um, but these, uh, these commitments are just far away enough from the consensus that it's interesting, not so far away to be incomprehensible. Um, and I, think, I, I guess the reason I'm coming down a little bit hard on them is like from 1998 to 2000, I read all of Chesterton's work I could. Uh, and, and he started to feel more paradoxy. Those paradoxes started to feel mechanical. He was very pugilistic. It's kind of like Christian apologetics through the back door, but they ossified into something mechanical. Um, and, uh, but I, I just like that you have characters that make explicit philosophical arguments and they really mix it up. And even though you know which, where the author falls on it, he really, in, in a good faith way, lets the other side have their, ha- get their digs in too. Um, it, it doesn't feel like Anne Rand or something in which like all the people she disagrees yeah. with are, are dumbasses. Um, I was going to say, uh, how do you feel about the ball and the cross? Uh, it, it's, it's good, but I don't reread it. Like I read this one. The one I reread okay. the second to this one is a club of queer trades. 
Um, okay. Uh, which, uh, which I, I really like. Um, the ball on the cross is, uh, it, it doesn't seem to have the, the oomph of this. It, do, it definitely has a lot of great images. It has that beginning image of like the Zeppelin, uh, coming yeah. through the fog to the top of the cathedral. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, but I, I read like Chesterton's orthodoxy and everlasting man. And I read like C.S. Lewis's Christian apologetics, not because I totally agree with them, but I just feel like there we, we can intelligently disagree about it. And I, I, you get to see the pleasure of a mind at work on these problems who are, who's not a polemicist, but is having a good faith discussion. Uh, that yeah. is what's fun about them. You don't feel like, Oh God, I'm just gonna have somebody yell at me, you know, or, or tell me <laughs> that I'm dumb or I'm wicked. Um, like it's like, Oh, well, and, and since I, you know, grew up in this kind of atmosphere, it, it's a familiar place for me. So my, my, Next question for you is, have you read much Gene Wolfe? Oh, I know I should because he, he's Illinois. Uh, he's Catholic. I'm Chicago. Uh, Neil Gaiman loves him, I know. Uh, he's, yeah. somebody, he's always on my list. I know that he just died, right? Uh, uh, 2018, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I mean to – I write it down on a piece of paper and I lose a piece of paper. No, I haven't read him. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, he, he is in many ways a – a spiritual successor of Chesterton, mm. but of this kind of Chesterton. He, he leans into the weird. Mm -hmm. He has no problem making his characters complicated and paradoxical. Uh, he is, I'm sure you've heard this before, the master of the unreliable narrator mm -hmm. was, you know, rest his soul. But uh, you know, and, and like you said, it's the idea of a mind at work uh, on difficult problems who is having a good faith argument. I think it, it says a lot that he was, you know, a, a Catholic man, a, a deeply religious man, and yet was great friends with Ursula Le Guin. They could mm -hmm. not have been, you know, on more different sides of the political spectrum there. Yeah. Uh, but they had a great deal of respect for each other. And, you know, and so... I love seeing uh, that generation of writers, especially the talents that came out, uh, because even when they disagreed on things, they were able to work on these problems and speak about them in intelligent and respectful ways, and then take those conversations and come up with something absolutely bonkers for a book. <laughs> yeah, and Chesterton was like that, too. He was big friends with H.G. Wells, and they couldn't have yeah. disagreed more. Uh, um, the... Uh, um, the uh, there is, I guess, talking about disagreements, can, can we talk about like how he, I, I want to talk about how he reads now as opposed to how I first read him in 1999. Because he, he, yeah. reading him now feels different than reading him in 1999 in that cultural, mm -hmm. cultural and political context. Like, well, and your own, your yeah, personal context yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's reactionary in a way that, uh, didn't read like that to me in 1999. There's because like in 1990 there was this kind of like kind of anodyne uh, cultural liberalism and kind of uh, peacefulness about the ideological world. It was a very very much felt like a post political time. We're in a very political time now, and some things that he says now are like rub up so close against like what they call tradcath stuff online that it, uh -huh. it, it, and, and it, it kind of like oh I don't know if I like you, you know like. Chesterton was against women's suffrage. You know, I mean, this is not a guy that I'm going to agree, agree with everything about. Um, like, so, um, so like on, on one page, he says like the scientific and artistic worlds are silently bound in a crusade against the family and the state. Like 
1999, that sounded like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But now it seems like a typical right-wing paranoia about wokeism or whatever, you know. Um, but then it, it can seem left-wing, Chesterton, by our modern lights. Like a policeman criticizes how policing works. He says, our ordinary treatment of the poor criminal was a pretty brutal business. I tell you, I'm sometimes sick of my trade when I see how perpetually it means merely a war upon the ignorant and desperate. It's like, oh, okay. Well, wait, are you left or are you right? But then he turns it's around almost to, like those things are made up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's these categories are so ossified now. It's much harder to think beyond them now than it was, I think, about you know twenty four years ago when I first read this. That like, because yeah. then he pivots. That same detective says, talks about how oh, what we're looking for now is intellectual crime. This is how he says like the ordinary detective goes to pot houses to arrest thieves. We go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The ordinary detective discovers from a ledger a diary a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. Uh, it's like, what? So it's a fanciful notion here. But of course, this is nightmarish yeah. if it was ever real. Basically, it's O'Brien from 1984. It's thought crime, right? Mm, but like yep. Chesterton is talking about it is that it's a good thing. Um, but now in this era of like total surveillance of online discourse, which anything you write or say can be turned against you, like th- like this kind of like thing is like, oh, yeah, let's go against the intellectuals. You know, that does not seem that great anymore. Um, and so but then he turns around and says, like, well, you've got this eternal idiotic idea. If anarchy came, it would come from the poor. Why should it? The poor have been rebels, but they have never been anarchists. They have more interest in anyone else of being decent government. The poor man really has a stake in the country. The rich man hasn't. He can go away to, to New Guinea in a yacht. The poor have sometimes objected to being objected to be governed badly. The rich have always objected to being governed at all. This is like a critique yeah. of like libertarians, you know, and like seasteaders and stuff like that. So he goes left to right, left to right uh, in, in terms of like our modern categories. And that's what makes him so fun to read. He's a reactionary, but unpredictable. He had this, he wasn't a capitalist and he wasn't a communist. He was this thing called a distributist which means that like, well, every, like wealth should be shared among everybody. Everybody should have like a little bit of land, a pig at the end of the garden, you know, uh, grow uh, their uh, own vegetables. Chicken in every pot, a car in every garage. <laughs> exactly. But like <laughs> nobody wanted that and it, 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 it never came to be. But I, I guess like he take there's this vestigial atavistic part of me that kind of takes delight in his reactionary positions because I was raised Catholic, but Enjoying Chesterton inoculated me against harsher strains of reactionary thought that came along later that we're seeing right now. Like, I feel like, oh, yeah, I got it out of my system by reading Chesterton. Because I know that if, like, if I was in high school in 2016, I would have been, like, some weird alt-right kid who would have made myself obnoxious. Because I was very transgressive <laughs> when I was a kid, and I would have, uh, like, I... All, back in the 90s, 80s, like all the transgressive punk rock energy was on the left, but now all the yep. re- punk rock transgressive energy is on the right of like tearing shit down and stuff like that. And so I would have just gone for that. And, and so I, 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 my, it's my cussedness that makes me like and disagree with Chesterton. Well, on that note, we should probably <laughs> wrap this up. That's actually a great spot to stop. Um, I do want to ask you guys uh, final thoughts, final, maybe a final pitch. Um, if anybody's, you know, still listening who hasn't read the book or, you know, uh, we, we can give people a tool in their tool belt for recommending this book. How would you pitch this book to somebody who's never read it? Uh, or would you, um, you know, these days, uh, who would you pitch it to? How and why? Okay. I would say read this book. If you, in a, if you enjoy a, a poppy, pulpy adventure story, 
but you want to close the book at the end and be left with something burning in your chest. Dirtin. That sounds great. Yeah, I I, I would say um, the the if if the, it's it's uh, yeah you sell it as an adventure story. If you say, oh, you love this book, it's a philosophical fever dream. They'll say, get <laughs> get that out of here. I don't want to hear about that. Uh, uh, but he say it's it's a crazy turn of the century adventure story with you know capers and bomb plots and disguises and uh, uh, all that and. Um, and 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 then it just there's aspects of it that are just visionary and uncanny. Um, then I think, or maybe horrifying. Then I th- and and it's funny too. It's really funny. And we didn't really get into the humor of this book, like like, <laughs> like when Gregory is trying to give that speech toning down anarchism, and, and all that. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, "We don't, you know, eat human flesh." And the anarchist's like, "Why not?" <laughs> <laughs> He said, he, he goes, it's a, our movement is about love. And everybody's like, screw you. <laughs> Down with yeah, love. Yeah, uh, um, yeah it, it, it's, it's funny. It's an adventure story. It's very short. Um, and, um, and you will be changed. And it's the kind of book you will read and reread it for us for life. But I think it's the kind of book that you know who is going to like it when you meet the person. Mm, like, yeah. like, just from, like, like even... I'll I'll tell you this, any spiritually searching Catholic would love this book uh, for sure. Uh, um, And uh, the, um, it, it it is, I think it's, uh, but it is not a, uh, I think people who just like social realism um, or, or, you know, and and that's all they like and they don't like anything weird would not like this book. And so, but I know those people, You, you can sniff them out within five minutes. And you can cross them off your list and not talk. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. And not I, I will add one more addendum to that. If if you're recommending this book and, and it's to the sort of reader who will become upset by outdated social mores. Yeah. Not this one. Yeah. yeah. No, this is a book written point. around turn of the century England. There are... Yeah. England in 1900 sensibilities in here. You know, so. th- that said, it is not as bad as it could be. It could be no, well, much not, worse. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, actually, in, in terms of that, if you took like all the books that are written in 1908, I think this would be in the top 5% of not having problematic content. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, like, because it, it's like you said, you know, it, it's not just a book about the social setting. It's not yeah. trying to make that sort of a point. This is a philosophical book, yeah, and and it's it's a it's a book about exploring what your internal landscape is, yes, and and because of that, what other people look like doesn't really matter. You yeah, know? he uses some of these things as like you know signposts, like some of the when when the uh, the members of the council are in disguise, their disguises are foreigners. Yeah. And then they take them off and they're Englishmen. But like, <laughs> yeah, you know, that's not what the book is about. It's not right. trying to make a point that, oh, foreigners are evil. Yeah. It, it's, it's something very different. 
Yeah, and actually, there's a heroic French guy later on, so don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which for an Englishman to write in 1908, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right, you guys. I'll tell you my favorite thing about this episode is that uh, I, I didn't have to talk all that much, which was perfect for this book because I got to learn a lot about what I just went through. Um, and I hope other people pick it up and give it a shot. If it sounds like it would be good for you, I, I hope you do so. I also, like I said, hope you go to the to thelegendarium.com and check out all the links I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, check out Inking Out Loud if you haven't done so. Uh, like I said, Drew, we have you enough that I'm pretty sure anybody who's ever listened to our show knows your show. Um, but a, a special shout out. We have also done an episode on The Man Who Was Thursday featuring right. Joseph Pierce, who is one of the leading... Uh, uh, Chesterton scholars today. Uh, he he teaches Chesterton uh, at the university level and has for a long time. Guys, a has a fascinating life story. Like talk about uh, a, a life of contradictions. Joseph yeah. Pierce uh, grew up in England. Uh, was a literal terrorist. Wrote newspapers for the IRA. Oh wow! Uh, was imprisoned multiple times eventually converted to Catholicism, uh, was like, what was I doing in my misguided youth and became a world-renowned scholar and, and professor? <laughs> yeah, and that was uh, only within the last few months. Do you happen to have the <clears throat> episode number on that one? Ooh, uh, I do have the episode number, if you give me just a moment. It was episode 158. Okay, so yeah, people can yeah. go check that out. And James, uh, you mentioned your books. Uh, you, last time you were on, we were talk, talking about Dare to Know. Uh, people can go check that out. It is actually, I think it's number three on my TBR list. Oh. Right so I'm getting close, James. Uh, 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 Craig, uh, yeah, it's another book that, as many people online say, the last quarter is crazy. So, uh, <laughs> um, All right. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, in the fall, uh, uh, Bride of the Tornado. <laughs> there you go, Bride of the Tornado. It's so fantastic. So everybody, make sure you go check those out. Oh, but uh, one last thing. Please the, go the, ahead. Uh, the Order of Oddfish is very Man Who is Thursday y. There oh, are okay. the, 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 the villain of that book, the Belgian prankster, is very much a takeoff on Sunday. And there's a scene which is just like the Feast of Fear scene in um, in uh, in The Man Who Is Thursday, but it happens in a country kitchen in Muscatine, Iowa. Uh, um, but <laughs> but it's a uh, it's it, it, that there's so like so much of the Order of Oddfish. My first book is kind of just taken so much from like I did what I, what one should not do, which is use. <laughs> try to emulate the man who is Thursday and catch that lightning in a bottle again. Uh, um, so um, yeah, if, if, if you like man who is Thursday, you might like the order of odd fish, the order All of right. odd fish. All right. Absolutely. Cool. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on again. I uh, really appreciate it. And what a, this is a conversation that's gone lo longer than I usually let them go because uh, <laughs> man, what a book, what, yeah. what a pick James. Well thank done. you. And thanks for, for coming along, Drew. I, I'm glad we have the, the Catholic perspective. I think it's very, very necessary for a book like this. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it great to meet you. Great chatting about this. I had a wonderful time today. Me too. I was thinking about uh, naming this episode Two Catholics and a Mormon. Um, <laughs> just, just, you know, maybe that'll draw people in and get, yeah, them, to, but, get them to listen. With the so. Mormon, you can't have it be Two Catholics and a Mormon walk into a bar. Um <laughs> Well, you can now. Uh, oh, okay. well, yeah, yeah, say. <laughs> Depends oh. on how lapsed that Mormon is. Craig, Craig, have you read what? The Accidental Terrorist by William Shun? 
No. Uh, it's really good. Uh, I, 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 I just saw a whole other conversation. <laughs> That was a that was a really great hesitation there. It, it, it's uh, something that I, I it's written by an uh, ex Mormon who like about about his time as a uh, doing the missionary work and basically the, the, the just in his life what he did is that his he tried to get out of he was like lost the faith he tried to get out of it his friend they they brought him back into it and so they're both there you know and um they continue to do the mission and then like his his you know uh senpai left and then he got like a kohai and then he uh was the guiding him his kohai said i i'm going to uh i, I don't believe this more i'm going to leave he they, he's getting on a plane this guy william shun this is a real life story he said i cannot let him get away he has to come back to the mission he called in a bomb threat to the airline <laughs> um, to ground the plane so you could get him off wow. it. Then he got caught, thrown into Canadian prison, which sounds hilarious, Canadian prison. Uh, um, yeah. and, uh, but then um, <laughs> but he had, right, and then they, 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 the, the church got him out, blah, 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 blah. But um, he, he talks about his time in the missions and like the day-to-day life of what it's like, which I never knew about, and then intersperses that with the history of Mormonism in America. It is a great book. I recommend it 100%. The Accidental Terrorist by William Shun. Well, there's your recommendation right there. Yeah. All right. And on that note, uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure you head to Discord where we'll have a thread for this episode. You can uh, make your thoughts known. Um, Gentlemen, once again, thank you very much. And I will see everybody next time. Thank you. Thank you.